Question 35 of Summa Theologica Prima Secundae, Treatise on the Passions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Prima Secundae, Treatise on the Passions, by St. Thomas Aquinas translated by the fathers of the english dominican province question thirty five of pain or sorrow in itself in eight articles we have now to consider pain and sorrow concerning which we must consider one sorrow or pain in itself two its cause three its effects four its remedies five its goodness or malice under the first head there are eight points of inquiry first whether pain is a passion of the soul second whether sorrow is the same as pain third whether sorrow or pain is contrary to pleasure. Fourth, whether all sorrow is contrary to all pleasure. Fifth, whether there is a sorrow contrary to the pleasure of contemplation. Sixth, whether sorrow is to be shunned more than pleasure is to be sought. Seventh, whether exterior pain is greater than interior. Eighth, of the species of sorrow. First article, whether pain is a passion of the soul. Objection one. It would seem that pain is not a passion of the soul, because no passion of the soul is in the body. But pain can be in the body, since Augustine says in On True Religion 12 that bodily pain is a sudden corruption of the well-being of that thing which the soul by making evil use of it made subject to corruption therefore pain is not a passion of the soul objection to further every passion of the soul belongs to the appetitive faculty but pain does not belong to the appetitive but rather to the apprehensive part for augustine says in on the nature of the good twenty that bodily pain is caused by the sense resisting a more powerful body therefore pain is not a passion of the soul objection three further every passion of the soul belongs to the animal appetite but pain does not belong to the animal appetite but rather to the natural appetite for augustine says in on the literal meaning of genesis eight fourteen had not some good remained in nature we should feel no pain in being punished by the loss of good therefore pain is not a passion of the soul On the contrary, Augustine, in On the City of God, 14.8, eight, 
reckons pain among the passions of the soul quoting virgil his aeneid six seven hundred and thirty three hence wild desires and groveling fears and human laughter human tears translation from cunnington i answer that just as two things are requisite for pleasure namely conjunction with good and perception of this conjunction so also two things are requisite for pain namely conjunction with some evil which is evil in so far as it deprives one of some good and perception of this conjunction now whatever is conjoined if it have not the aspect of good or evil in regard to the being to which it is conjoined cannot cause pleasure or pain whence it is evident that something under the aspect of good or evil is the object of the pleasure or pain but good and evil as such are objects of the appetite consequently it is clear that pleasure and pain belong to the appetite now every appetitive movement or inclination consequent to apprehension belongs to the intellective or sensitive appetite since the inclination of the natural appetite is not consequent to an apprehension of the subject of that appetite but to the apprehension of another as stated in the first part question 103 articles 1 and 3 since then pleasure and pain presuppose some sense or apprehension in the same subject it is evident that pain like pleasure is in the intellective or sensitive appetite again every movement of the sensitive appetite is called a passion as stated above question 22 articles 1 and 3 and especially those which tend to some defect consequently pain according as it is in the sensitive appetite is most properly called a passion of the soul just as bodily ailments are properly called passions of the body hence augustine in his on the city of god fourteen seven and eight quoting cicero reckons pain especially as being a kind of ailment reply to objection one we speak of the body because the cause of pain is in the body as when we suffer something hurtful to the body but the movement of pain is always in the soul since the body cannot feel pain unless the soul feel it as augustine says in his commentary on psalm 87 4 reply to objection to we speak of pain of the senses not as though it were an act of the sensitive power but because the senses are required for bodily pain in the same way as for bodily pleasure reply to objection three pain at the loss of good proves the goodness of the nature not because pain is an act of the natural appetite 
because nature desires something as good the removal of which being perceived there results the passion of pain in the sensitive appetite second article whether sorrow is the same as pain objection one it would seem that sorrow is not pain for augustine says in on the city of god fourteen seven that pain is used to express bodily suffering but sorrow is used more in reference to the soul therefore sorrow is not pain objection to further pain is only in respect of present evil but sorrow can refer to both past and future evil thus repentance is sorrow for the past and anxiety for the future therefore sorrow is quite different from pain objection three further pain seems not to follow save from the sense of touch but sorrow can arise from all the senses therefore sorrow is not pain and extends to more objects on the contrary the apostle says in romans 9 2 i have great sorrow and continual pain in my heart thus denoting the same thing by sorrow and pain translators note the dewey version translates sorrow as sadness then pain as sorrow i answer that pleasure and pain can arise from a twofold apprehension namely from the apprehension of an exterior sense and from the interior apprehension of the intellect or of the imagination now the interior apprehension extends to more objects than the exterior apprehension because whatever things come under the exterior apprehension come under the interior but not conversely consequently that pleasure alone which is caused by an interior apprehension is called joy as stated above question 31 article 3 and in like manner that pain alone which is caused by an interior apprehension is called sorrow and just as that pleasure which is caused by an exterior apprehension is called pleasure but not joy so too that pain which is caused by an exterior apprehension is called pain indeed but not sorrow accordingly sorrow is a species of pain as joy is a species of pleasure reply to objection one augustine is speaking there of the use of the word because pain is more generally used in reference to bodily pains which are better known than in reference to spiritual pains reply to objection two external sense perceives only what is present but the interior cognitive power can perceive the present 
past and future consequently sorrow can regard present past and future whereas bodily pain which follows apprehension of the external sense can only regard something present reply to objection three the sensibles of touch are painful not only in so far as they are disproportionate to the apprehensive power but also in so far as they are contrary to nature whereas the objects of the other senses can indeed be disproportionate to the apprehensive power but they are not contrary to nature save as they are subordinate to the sensibles of touch consequently man alone who is a perfectly cognizant animal takes pleasure in the objects of the other senses for their own sake whereas other animals take no pleasure in them save as referable to the sensibles of touch as stated in ethics 3.10 accordingly in referring to the objects of the other senses we do not speak of pain in so far as it is contrary to natural pleasure but rather of sorrow which is contrary to joy so then if pain be taken as denoting bodily pain which is its more usual meaning then it is contrasted with sorrow according to the distinction of interior and exterior apprehension although on the part of the objects pleasure extends further than does bodily pain but if pain be taken in a wide sense then it is the genus of sorrow as stated above third article whether sorrow or pain is contrary to pleasure objection one it would seem that sorrow is not contrary to pleasure for one of two contraries is not the cause of the other but sorrow can be the cause of pleasure for it is written in matthew 5 5 blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted therefore they are not contrary to one another objection to further one contrary does not denominate the other but to some pain or sorrow gives pleasure thus augustine says in confessions three two that in stage plays sorrow itself gives pleasure and then in confessions four five that weeping is a bitter thing and yet it sometimes pleases us therefore pain is not contrary to pleasure objection three further one contrary is not the matter of the other because contraries cannot coexist together but sorrow can be the matter of pleasure for augustine says in on penance 13 the penitent should ever sorrow and rejoice in his sorrow the philosopher too says in ethics 9 4 that on the other hand the evil man feels pain at having been pleased therefore pleasure and pain 
are not contrary to one another. On the contrary, Augustine says in On the City of God 14.6 that joy is the volition of consent to the things we wish, and that sorrow is the volition of dissent from the things we do not wish. But consent and dissent are contraries. Therefore, pleasure and sorrow are contrary to one another. I answer that, as the philosopher says in Metaphysics 10.4, contrariety is a difference in respect of a form. Now the form or species of a passion or movement is taken from the object or term. Consequently, since the objects of pleasure and sorrow or pain, notably, present good and present evil, are contrary to one another, it follows that pain and pleasure are contrary to one another. Reply to Objection 1. Nothing hinders one contrary, causing the other accidentally, and thus sorrow can be the cause of pleasure. In one way, insofar as from sorrow at the absence of something, or at the presence of its contrary, one seeks the more eagerly for something pleasant. Thus a thirsty man seeks more eagerly the pleasure of a drink as a remedy for the pain he suffers. In another way, insofar as from a strong desire for a certain pleasure, one does not shrink from undergoing pain, so as to obtain that pleasure. In each of these ways, the sorrows of the present life lead us to the comfort of the future life. Because by the mere fact that man mourns for his sins, or for the delay of glory, he merits the consolation of eternity. In like manner, a man merits it when he shrinks not from hardships and straits in order to obtain it. Reply to Objection 2. Pain itself can be pleasurable accidentally, insofar as it is accompanied by wonder, as in stage plays, or insofar as it recalls a beloved object to one's memory, and makes one feel one's love for the thing, whose absence gives us pain. Consequently, since love is pleasant, both pain and whatever else results from love, for as much as they remind us of our love, are pleasant. And for this reason, we derive pleasure even from pains depicted on the stage, insofar as, in witnessing them, we perceive ourselves to conceive a certain love for those who are there represented. Reply to Objection 3. The will and the reason reflect on their own acts, inasmuch as the acts themselves of the will and reason are considered under the aspect of good or evil. In this way, sorrow can be the matter of pleasure or vice versa, not essentially but accidentally, that is, insofar as either of them is considered under the aspect of good or evil. 
Fourth article, whether all sorrow is contrary to all pleasure. Objection 1. It would seem that all sorrow is contrary to all pleasure. Because, just as whiteness and blackness are contrary species of color, so pleasure and sorrow are contrary species of the soul's passions. But whiteness and blackness are universally contrary to one another. Therefore, pleasure and sorrow are so too. Objection 2. Further, remedies are made of things contrary to the evil. But every pleasure is a remedy for all manner of sorrow, as the philosopher declares in Ethics 7.14. Therefore, Every pleasure is contrary to every sorrow. Objection 3. Further, contraries are hindrances to one another. But every sorrow hinders any kind of pleasure, as is evident from Ethics 10.5. Therefore, every sorrow is contrary to every pleasure. On the contrary, the same thing is not the cause of contraries. But joy for one thing, and sorrow for the opposite thing, proceed from the same habit. Thus from charity it happens that we rejoice with them that rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Romans 12.15 Therefore, not every sorrow is contrary to every pleasure. I answer that, as the philosopher says in Metaphysics 10.4, contrariety is a difference in respect of a form. Now a form may be generic or specific. Consequently, things may be contraries in respect of a generic form as virtue and vice, or in respect of a specific form as justice and injustice. Now we must observe that some things are specified by absolute forms, for example, substances and qualities, whereas other things are specified in relation to something extrinsic, for example, passions and movements, which derive their species from their terms or objects. Accordingly, in those things that are specified by absolute forms, it happens that species are contained under contrary genera and are not contrary to their specific nature. But it does not happen for them to have any affinity or fittingness to one another. For intemperance and justice, which are in the contrary genera of virtue and vice, are not contrary to one another in respect of their specific nature and yet they have no affinity or fittingness to one another. On the other hand, in those things that are specified in relation to something extrinsic, it happens that species belonging to contrary genera are not only not contrary to one another, but also that they have a certain mutual affinity or fittingness. The reason of this is that where there is one same relation 
to two contraries, there is contrariety. For example, to approach to a white thing and to approach to a black thing are contraries. Whereas contrary relations to contrary things implies a certain likeness. For example, to recede from something white and to approach to something black. This is most evident in the case of contradiction, which is the principle of opposition. Because opposition consists in affirming and denying the same thing, for example, white and non-white. While there is fittingness and likeness in the affirmation of one contrary and the denial of the other, as if I were to say, black and not white. Now sorrow and pleasure, being passions, are specified by their objects. According to their respective genera, they are contrary to one another. Since one is a kind of pursuit, the other a kind of avoidance, which are to the appetite what affirmation and denial are to the intellect, according to Ethics 6.2. Consequently, sorrow and pleasure, in respect of the same object, are specifically contrary to one another, whereas sorrow and pleasure, in respect of objects that are not contrary but disparate, are not specifically contrary to one another, but are also disparate. For instance, sorrow at the death of a friend, and pleasure in contemplation. If, however, those diverse objects be contrary to one another, then pleasure and sorrow are not only specifically contrary, but they also have a certain mutual fittingness and affinity. For instance, to rejoice in good and to sorrow for evil. Reply to Objection 1. Whiteness and blackness do not take their species from their relationship to something extrinsic, as pleasure and sorrow do. Wherefore, the comparison does not hold. Reply to Objection 2. Genus is taken from matter, as is stated in Metaphysics 8.2. And in accidents, the subject takes the place of matter. Now it has been said above that pleasure and sorrow are generically contrary to one another. Consequently, in every sorrow, the subject has a disposition contrary to the disposition of the subject of pleasure. Because in every pleasure, the appetite is viewed as accepting what it possesses, and in every sorrow as avoiding it. And therefore, on the part of the subject, every pleasure is a remedy for any kind of sorrow, and every sorrow is a hindrance of all manner of pleasure, but chiefly when pleasure is opposed to sorrow specifically. Wherefore the reply to the third objection is evident, or we may say that, although not every sorrow is specifically contrary to every pleasure, yet they are contrary to one another in regard to their effects, since one has the effect of strengthening the animal nature, while the other results in a kind of discomfort. 
Fifth article. Whether there is any sorrow contrary to the pleasure of contemplation. Objection 1. It would seem that there is a sorrow that is contrary to the pleasure of contemplation. For the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, The sorrow that is according to God worketh penance steadfast unto salvation. Now to look at God belongs to the higher reason, whose act is to give itself to contemplation, according to Augustine in On the Trinity 12, 3, and 4. Therefore, there is a sorrow contrary to the pleasure of contemplation. Objection 2. Further, contrary things have contrary effects. If, therefore, the contemplation of one contrary gives pleasure, the other contrary will give sorrow, and so there will be a sorrow contrary to the pleasure of contemplation. Objection 3. Further, as the object of pleasure is good, so the object of sorrow is evil. But contemplation can be an evil, since the philosopher says in Metaphysics 12.9 that it is unfitting to think of certain things. Therefore, sorrow can be contrary to the pleasure of contemplation. Objection 4. Further, any work, so far as it is unhindered, can be a cause of pleasure, as stated in Ethics 7, 12, and 13, as well as Ethics 10, 4. But the work of contemplation can be hindered in many ways, either so as to destroy it altogether, or as to make it difficult. Therefore, in contemplation there can be a sorrow contrary to the pleasure. Objection 5. Further, affliction of the flesh is a cause of sorrow. But, as is written in Ecclesiastes 12.12, 12, much study is an affliction of the flesh. Therefore, contemplation admits of sorrow contrary to its pleasure. On the contrary, it is written in Wisdom 8.16, Her, that is, wisdoms, conversation hath no bitterness, nor her company any tediousness, but joy and gladness. Now the conversation and company of wisdom are found in contemplation. Therefore, there is no sorrow contrary to the pleasure of contemplation. I answer that. The pleasure of contemplation can be understood in two ways. In one way, so that contemplation is the cause, but not the object of pleasure. And then pleasure is taken not in contemplating, but in the thing contemplated. Now, it is possible to contemplate something harmful and sorrowful, just as to contemplate something suitable and pleasant. Consequently, if the pleasure of contemplation be taken in this way, nothing hinders some sorrow being contrary to the pleasure of contemplation. In another way, 
the pleasure of contemplation is understood so that contemplation is its object and cause as when one takes pleasure in the very act of contemplating and thus according to gregory of nyssa in his on the nature of man 18 no sorrow is contrary to that pleasure which is about contemplation and the philosopher says the same in topics 113 and in ethics 103 this however is to be understood as being the case properly speaking the reason is because sorrow is of itself contrary to pleasure in a contrary object thus pleasure in heat is contrary to sorrow caused by cold but there is no contrary to the object of contemplation because contraries as apprehended by the mind are not contrary but one is the means of knowing the other wherefore properly speaking there cannot be a sorrow contrary to the pleasure of contemplation nor has it any sorrow annexed to it as bodily pleasures have which are like remedies against certain annoyances thus a man takes pleasure in drinking through being troubled with thirst but when the thirst is quite driven out the pleasure of drinking ceases also because the pleasure of contemplation is not caused by one's being quit of an annoyance but by the fact that contemplation is pleasant in itself for pleasure is not a becoming but a perfect operation as stated above in question 31 article 1 accidentally however sorrow is mingled with the pleasure of contemplation and this in two ways first on the part of an organ secondly through some impediment in the apprehension on the part of an organ sorrow or pain is mingled with apprehension directly as regards the apprehensive powers of the sensitive part which have a bodily organ either from the sensible object disagreeing with the normal condition of the organ as to taste of something bitter and the smell of something foul or from the sensible object though agreeable being so continuous in its action on the sense that it exceeds the normal condition of the organ as stated above in question 33 article 2 the result being that an apprehension which at first was pleasant becomes tedious but these two things cannot occur directly in the contemplation of the mind because the mind has no corporeal organ wherefore it was said in the authority quoted above that intellectual contemplation has neither bitterness nor tediousness since however the human mind in contemplation makes use of the sensitive powers of apprehension to whose acts weariness is incidental therefore some affliction or pain is indirectly mingled with contemplation nevertheless in neither of these ways is the pain thus accidentally mingled with contemplation contrary to the pleasure thereof because pain 
caused by a hindrance to contemplation is not contrary to the pleasure of contemplation but rather is in affinity and in harmony with it as is evident from what has been said above in article four while pain or sorrow caused by bodily weariness does not belong to the same genus wherefore it is altogether disparate accordingly it is evident that no sorrow is contrary to pleasure taken in the very act of contemplation nor is any sorrow connected with it save accidentally reply to objection one the sorrow which is according to god is not caused by the very act of intellectual contemplation but by something which the mind contemplates notably by sin which the mind considers as contrary to the love of god reply to objection to things which are contrary according to nature are not contrary according as they exist in the mind for things that are contrary in reality are not contrary in the order of thought indeed rather one contrary is the reason for knowing the other hence one and the same science considers contraries reply to objection three contemplation in itself is never evil since it is nothing else than the consideration of truth which is the good of the intellect it can however be evil accidentally that is in so far as the contemplation of a less noble object hinders the contemplation of a more noble object or on the part of the object contemplated to which the appetite is inordinately attached reply to objection four sorrow caused by a hindrance to contemplation is not contrary to the pleasure of contemplation but is in harmony with it as stated above reply to objection five affliction of the flesh affects contemplation accidentally and indirectly as stated above sixth article whether sorrow is to be shunned more than pleasure is to be sought objection one it would seem that sorrow is to be shunned more than pleasure is to be sought for augustine says in his eighty-three questions question sixty-three there is nobody that does not shun sorrow more than he seeks pleasure now that which all agree in doing seems to be natural therefore it is natural and right for sorrow to be shunned more than pleasure is sought objection to further the action of a contrary conduces to rapidity and intensity of movement for hot water freezes quicker and harder as the philosopher says in meteorology one twelve but the shunning of sorrow is due to the contrariety of the cause of sorrow whereas the desire for pleasure does not arise from any contrariety but rather from the suitableness of the pleasant object therefore 
sorrow is shunned more eagerly than pleasure is sought objection three further the stronger the passion which a man resists according to reason the more worthy is he of praise and the more virtuous since virtue is concerned with the difficult and the good according to ethics two three but the brave man who resists the movement of shunning sorrow is more virtuous than the temperate man who resists the movement of desire for pleasure since the philosopher says in rhetoric two four that the brave and the just are chiefly praised therefore the movement of shunning sorrow is more eager than the movement of seeking pleasure on the contrary good is stronger than evil as dionysius declares in on the divine names four but pleasure is desirable for the sake of the good which is its object whereas the shunning of sorrow is on account of evil therefore the desire for pleasure is more eager than the shunning of sorrow i answer that the desire for pleasure is of itself more eager than the shunning of sorrow the reason of this is that the cause of pleasure is a suitable good while the cause of pain or sorrow is an unsuitable evil now it happens that a certain good is suitable without any repugnance at all but it is not possible for any evil to be so unsuitable as not to be a suitable in some way wherefore pleasure can be entire and perfect whereas sorrow is always partial therefore desire for pleasure is naturally greater than the shunning of sorrow another reason is because the good which is the object of pleasure is sought for its own sake whereas the evil which is the object of sorrow is to be shunned as being a privation of good and that which is by reason of itself is stronger than that which is by reason of something else moreover we find a confirmation of this in natural movements for every natural movement is more intense in the end when a thing approaches the term that is suitable to its nature than at the beginning when it leaves the term that is unsuitable to its nature as though nature were more eager in tending to what is suitable to it than in shunning what is unsuitable therefore the inclination of the appetitive power is of itself more eager in tending to pleasure than in shunning sorrow but it happens accidentally that a man shuns sorrow more eagerly than he seeks pleasure and this for three reasons first on the part of the apprehension because as augustine says in on the trinity ten twelve love is felt more keenly when we lack that which we love now from the lack of what we love sorrow results which is caused either by the loss of some loved good or by the presence of some contrary evil 
but pleasure suffers no lack of the good loved for it rests in possession of it since then love is the cause of pleasure and sorrow the latter is the more shunned according as love is the more keenly felt on account of that which is contrary to it secondly on the part of the cause of sorrow or pain which cause is repugnant to a good that is more loved than the good in which we take pleasure for we love the natural well-being of the body more than the pleasure of eating and consequently we would leave the pleasure of eating and the like from fear of the pain occasioned by blows or other such causes which are contrary to the well-being of the body thirdly on the part of the effect namely in so far as sorrow hinders not only one pleasure but all reply to objection one the saying of augustine that sorrow is shunned more than pleasure is sought is true accidentally but not simply and this is clear from what he says after since we see that the most savage animals are deterred from the greatest pleasures by fear of pain which pain is contrary to life which is loved above all reply to objection to it is not the same with the movement from within and movement from without for movement from within tends to what is suitable more than it recedes from that which is unsuitable as we remarked above in regard to natural movement but movement from without is intensified by the very opposition because each thing strives in its own way to resist anything contrary to it as aiming at its own preservation hence violent movement is intense at first and slackens towards the end now the movement of the appetitive faculty is from within since it tends from the soul to the object consequently pleasure is of itself more to be sought than sorrow is to be shunned but the movement of the sensitive faculty is from without as it were from the object of the soul consequently the more contrary a thing is the more it is felt and then too accidentally in so far as the senses are requisite for pleasure and pain pain is shunned more than pleasure is sought reply to objection three a brave man is not praised because in accordance with reason he is not overcome by any kind of sorrow or pain whatever but because he is not overcome by that which is concerned with the dangers of death and this kind of sorrow is more shunned than pleasures of the table or of sexual intercourse are sought which latter pleasures are the object of temperance thus life is loved more than food and sexual pleasure but the temperate man is praised for refraining from pleasures of touch more than for not shunning the pains which are contrary to them as stated in ethics 311 seventh article 
whether outward pain is greater than interior sorrow. Objection 1. It would seem that outward pain is greater than interior sorrow of the heart. Because outward pain arises from a cause repugnant to the well-being of the body, which is life, whereas interior sorrow is caused by some evil in the imagination. Since, therefore, life is loved more than an imagined good, it seems that, according to what has been said above in Article 6, outward pain is greater than interior sorrow. Objection 2. Further, the reality moves more than its likeness does. But outward pain arises from the real conjunction of some contrary, whereas inward sorrow arises from the apprehended likeness of a contrary. Therefore, outward pain is greater than inward sorrow. Objection 3. Further, a cause is known by its effect, but outward pain has more striking effects, since man dies sooner of outward pain than of interior sorrow. Therefore, outward pain is greater and is shunned more than interior sorrow. On the contrary, it is written in Ecclesiasticus 25.17, the sadness of the heart is every wound, and the wickedness of a woman is all evil. Translator's note. In the Dewey version, wound is translated as a plague. Therefore, just as the wickedness of a woman surpasses all other wickedness, as the text implies, so sadness of the heart surpasses every outward wound. I answer that interior and exterior pain agree in one point and differ in two. They agree in this, that each is a movement of the appetitive power as stated above in Article 1. But they differ in respect of those two things which are requisite for pain and pleasure, namely, in respect of the cause which is a conjoined good or evil, and in respect of the apprehension. For the cause of outward pain is a conjoined evil repugnant to the body, while the cause of inward pain is a conjoined evil repugnant to the appetite. Again, outward pain arises from an apprehension of sense, chiefly of touch, while inward pain arises from an interior apprehension of the imagination or of the reason. If, then, we compare the cause of inward pain to the cause of outward pain, the former belongs, of itself, to the appetite to which both these pains belong, while the latter belongs to the appetite directly. Because inward pain arises from something being repugnant to the appetite itself, while outward pain arises from something being repugnant to the appetite, through being repugnant to the body. Now, that which is of itself is always prior 
to that which is by reason of another. Wherefore, from this point of view, inward pain surpasses outward pain. In like manner, also on the part of the apprehension, because the apprehension of reason and imagination is of a higher order than the apprehension of the sense of touch. Consequently, inward pain is, simply and of itself, more keen than outward pain. A sign whereof is that one willingly undergoes outward pain in order to avoid inward pain, and in so far as outward pain is not repugnant to the interior appetite, it becomes, in a manner, pleasant and agreeable by way of inward joy. Sometimes, however, outward pain is accompanied by inward pain, and then the pain is increased, because inward pain is not only greater than outward pain, it is also more universal. Since whatever is repugnant to the body can be repugnant to the interior appetite, and whatever is apprehended by sense may be apprehended by imagination and reason, but not conversely. Hence, in the passage quoted above, it is said expressively, Sadness of the heart is every wound, because even the pains of outward wounds are comprised in the interior sorrows of the heart. Reply to Objection 1. Inward pain can also arise from things that are destructive of life, and then the comparison of inward to outward pain must not be taken in reference to the various evils that cause pain, but in regard to the various ways in which this cause of pain is compared to the appetite. Reply to Objection 2. Inward pain is not caused by the apprehended likeness of a thing, for a man is not inwardly pained by the apprehended likeness itself, but by the thing which the likeness represents. And this thing is all the more perfectly apprehended by means of its likeness, as this likeness is more immaterial and abstract. Consequently, inward pain is, of itself, greater, as being caused by a greater evil, for as much as evil is better known by an inward apprehension. Reply to Objection 3. Bodily changes are more liable to be caused by outward pain, both from the fact that outward pain is caused by a corruptive conjoined corporally, which is a necessary condition of the sense of touch, and from the fact that the outward sense is more material than the inward sense, just as the sensitive appetite is more material than the intellective. For this reason, as stated above in question 22, article 3, as well as question 31, article 5, the body undergoes a greater change from the movement of the sensitive appetite, and, in like manner, from outward than from inward pain. Eighth article. Whether there are only four species of sorrow. Objection 1. 
it would seem that Damascene's division of sorrow in On the True Faith 2.14 into four species is incorrect, notably into torpor distress, which Gregory of Nyssa, in his On the Nature of Man 19, calls anxiety, pity and envy. For sorrow is contrary to pleasure, but there are not several species of pleasure. Therefore, it is incorrect to assign different species of sorrow. Objection 2. Further, repentance is a species of sorrow, and so are indignation and jealousy, as the philosopher states in Rhetoric 2, 9, and 11. But these are not included in the above species. Therefore, this division is insufficient. Objection 3. Further, the members of a division should be things that are opposed to one another. But these species are not opposed to one another. For, according to Gregory in his On the Nature of Man 19, torpor is sorrow depriving of speech. Anxiety is the sorrow that weighs down. Envy is sorrow for another's good. Pity is sorrow for another's wrongs. But it is possible for one to sorrow for another's wrongs and for another's good, and at the same time to be weighed down inwardly and outwardly to be speechless. Therefore, this division is incorrect. On the contrary, stands the twofold authority of Gregory of Nyssa and of Damascene. I answer that it belongs to the notion of a species that it is something added to the genus. But a thing can be added to a genus in two ways. First, as something belonging of itself to the genus and virtually contained therein, thus rational is added to animal. Such an addition makes true species of a genus, as the philosopher says in Metaphysics 7.12 and in Metaphysics 8.2 and 3. But secondly, a thing may be added to a genus, that is, as it were, foreign to the notion conveyed by that genus. Thus white, or something of the kind, may be added to animal. Such an addition does not make true species of the genus, according to the usual sense in which we speak of genera and species. But sometimes a thing is said to be a species of a certain genus through having something foreign to that genus indeed, but to which the notion of that genus is applicable. Thus a live coal or a flame is said to be a species of fire, because in each of them the nature of fire is applied to a foreign matter. In like manner, we speak of astronomy and perspective as being species of mathematics, inasmuch as the principles of mathematics are applied to natural matter. In accordance with this manner of speaking, the species of sorrow are reckoned by an application of the notion of sorrow to something foreign to it. This foreign matter may be taken on the part of the cause or the object, or of the effect. 
for the proper object of sorrow is one's own evil. Hence sorrow may be concerned for an object foreign to it, either through one's being sorry for an evil that is not one's own, and thus we have pity, which is sorrow for another's evil, considered, however, as one's own, or through one's being sorry for something that is neither evil nor one's own, but another's good, considered, however, as one's own evil, and thus we have envy. The proper effect of sorrow consists in a certain flight of the appetite, wherefore the foreign element in the effect of sorrow may be taken so as to affect the first part only by excluding flight. And thus we have anxiety, which weighs on the mind, so as to make escape seem impossible. Hence it is also called perplexity. If, however, the mind be weighed down so much that even the limbs become motionless, which belongs to torpor, then we have the foreign element affecting both, since there is neither flight, nor is the effect in the appetite. And the reason why torpor especially is said to deprive one of speech is because of all the external movements the voice is the best expression of the inward thought and desire, not only in men, but also in other animals, as stated in Politics one one. Reply to Objection 1. Pleasure is caused by good, which has only one meaning, and so pleasure is not divided into several species, as sorrow is. For the latter is caused by evil, which happens in many ways, as Dionysius says in On the Divine Names 4. Reply to Objection 1. Pleasure is caused by good, which has only one meaning, and so pleasure is not divided into several species as sorrow is. For the latter is caused by evil, which happens in many ways, as Dionysius says in On the Divine Names 4. Reply to Objection 2. Repentance is for one's own evil, which is the proper object of sorrow, wherefore it does not belong to these species. Jealousy and indignation are included in envy, as we shall explain later on, in Pars Secunda Secunde, Question 36, Article 2. Reply to Objection 3. This division is not according to opposite species, but according to the diversity of foreign matter to which the notion of sorrow is applied, as stated above. End of question 35. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.